Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. My name's Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon from two chapters of the book of Acts, chapters 21 and 22. And that Sunday I said that the following three sermons from Acts would each cover two chapters. That was the plan at the time, but Pastor Jody decided to slow down a little bit and cover chapters 23 and 24 in two separate sermons, which I think was the right right idea, the right thing to do. But uh, here I am preaching through two more chapters today, chapters 25 and 26. And we'll see as we work through these two chapters how they really form one account, one part of the story of the Apostle Paul's work and his witness of the gospel and the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now before we read these two chapters, I want to orient us to where Paul is, literally, where is he? Why is he there? Who's involved? What is God doing through all of these circumstances? If you remember back in chapter 21, the Apostle Paul sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He has a mission to complete in Jerusalem. Remember, he had organized a collection of money from the Gentile Christians for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, there's been a famine, food is scarce, and they need help. And the Apostle Paul has done hard work to raise money to help him, and so he's going to Jerusalem. He has a purpose, he has a mission, he has a task, he is intense about seeing it through. But remember, no matter where Paul goes, the people who love him keep telling him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. Why? Because no matter where Paul goes, the Holy Spirit keeps saying, Paul, you're going to have trouble in Jerusalem. You're going to have nothing but trouble in Jerusalem. Remember back in Acts 20, Paul says, now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And sure enough, he gets bonds and afflictions in Jerusalem. The unbelieving Jews see him in the temple, And they make up some false accusations about what he's doing there. They form a mob, start a riot, and try to beat him to death. Now the Roman soldiers, remember, stationed in Jerusalem, they intervene. They rescue him. They try to figure out what in the world is the deal with this man. And that sets, or that begins a series of opportunities for the Apostle Paul to do exactly what The Lord Jesus said he would do what the Apostle Paul would do with his life, with his ministry. Remember back in Acts 9, when the Lord Jesus put his hand on Paul and made him his own, 
Here's what he said. Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for for my name's sake. And so in Acts chapter 22, Paul speaks to that hostile crowd that had just tried to beat him to death. And in chapter 23, he speaks to the Jewish high council. And after that, the Jews formed a conspiracy to ambush and try to kill Paul the next time he was brought before the council. And then remember how Paul's nephew catches wind of this plot and he tells the Roman centurion who's in charge of Paul. And then the Romans go to great pains, take extraordinary measures to protect the life of Paul. And part of that is that they transfer him from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, down on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to a little place called Caesarea. Can I have the map real quick? So here's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is too hot, too dangerous for Paul, so the Romans take him down to Caesarea. And that's where he is the rest of the time in these next two chapters. And in Caesarea, Paul stands before the Roman governor, Felix. And in chapter 24, Paul testifies before Governor Felix of faith in Christ and righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Think about this for just a second. (laughs) This is a conversation that the Apostle Paul could never have had with this powerful man, Governor Felix, if it weren't for what? If it weren't for the plots and the hatred of the Jews. (laughs) This is a conversation that never would have happened apart from that. Now this is where we are at the end of chapter 24. We're coming into chapter 25, and here's what the end of chapter 24 says. But as he was discussing, this is Paul, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened, and rightly so. He is coming face to face with, with a message of his own sin and the judgment that awaits his sin. This is the right response. He should be frightened. And he says, go away for the present, Paul. And when, if I, when I find time, I'll summon you. And at the same time, too, Felix was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Like, maybe I can get a bribe from Paul. And therefore, he also used to sin sin for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. So that's where we are. That's where Paul is, stuck for two years in prison. Not as a punishment, not because he he had a trial and this was his punishment, his sentence, but simply because Governor Felix is a bad governor. That's all. He's corrupt. He wants Paul to bribe him 
Maybe if I keep him, the longer I keep him, surely he'll just pay me off and I can let him go. But I'm not going to let him go until he pays me off. He's a corrupt man, Felix. And he's also not interested in justice at all. He's only interested in advancing his political fortunes among the Jews. He's, he wants to do the Jews a favor. He wants to make the Jews happy. And so he keeps him in prison for two years. That is the first thing I want all of us to see from this account. The Apostle Paul is not a victim. He certainly doesn't think of himself as a victim. He's not having a stroke of bad luck. He's not at the mercy of bad men who somehow are able to derail God's purposes for Paul. All this is God's purpose for Paul. Every bit of it. Every second of it. To stand and to testify of the lordship of King Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And he gets to do that for two years with Felix. Two years. There's nothing here of fate or bad luck or victimhood with the Apostle Paul. He is always exactly where the Lord Jesus wants him. He knows that Jesus is sitting at God the Father's right hand, ruling over all things. He is head over all things for the sake of his church. He must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. That's what our Lord Jesus is doing through all of this. Paul knows it. He knows it. Remember what Jesus himself said to Paul back in Acts 23. When he was at the beginning of all this conflict and chaos, Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. All the way down, all the way up to the center. There's nothing that can happen to the Apostle Paul until he has fulfilled that calling, that appointment, that commission to stand in Rome. Everything is going exactly according to plan. And this is true of you. If you're a servant of God, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are exactly where he wants you. There are no accidents. There is no bad luck. There is no victim of fate. No victim of bad men who somehow outwit the king of the universe. None of that. Is God in control of all things or not? Is God in control of the sins and the failures and the ineptitudes of men or not? 
Is he or not? But don't you see how often we just act and think and live as if all of that is out of God's control? How many opportunities does Paul have to rail against Felix? Do we even get a hint that Paul is whining and complaining about his circumstances through all of, all of this or any of this? Not a hint. Not even a hint. And so neither should we. Neither should we. Brothers and sisters, do not spend your life chewing and churning and chafing under the hand of God. He is at work in you, through you, in whatever circumstances you're in, whatever hardships and pain you are in. We have to see all of it through the lens of faith. Not faith in the goodness of man, but faith in God, in the power of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has Paul exactly where he wants him. He has you exactly where he wants you. He has us exactly where he wants us. Well, that's my, my sermon before the sermon. I hope we can all hear that and take it to heart and benefit from it. Now, as we work through these two chapters, we're going to meet two more powerful men, two more civil magistrates of Rome, these two men are Portius Festus and King Herod Agrippa. Portius Festus is the successor to Felix. Felix's term, he's done being governor, he's moving on. And now Festus takes Felix's place as governor. The funny thing about Portius Festus, Josh, what's Portius mean? Pig! His name is Pig. Or associated with pigness or something. Now we all think that's crazy. Uh, pigs in the Roman world were, were really thought of almost as a sacred animal. They were sacrificed to the gods. So it's a little, it takes on a little different fla flavor <laughs> than, we, than we think. Mmm, now we're all hungry. So there's Piggy Festus. And then the other man is King Herod Agrippa, who's the ruler or tetrarch of a part of what we think of as Palestine. Now as we read through these two chapters, actually I'm going to read 25 first, I'm going to make some comments, and then we'll get to 26 in a minute. So follow along as I read Acts chapter 25. This is God's word, it's eternally true. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. 
Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to, to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So, on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. 
Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So, the new governor, Festus, wants to clear up old court cases, and the Jews are still pressing the case with Paul. And so he yet again gives the Jews an opportunity to bring charges against Paul, but they want Paul to be brought back to Jerusalem. And of course, that would not be good for Paul. (laughs) Because once again, what are the Jews up to? On the road from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, they intend to kill him, to ambush him again. And even if he does make it back to Jerusalem safely, there's no chance in a hundred years that Paul can get a safe or a, a fair trial in Jerusalem, right? So what does Paul do? Well, here's another lesson for us, actually, from Paul and the way he conducted himself in these very tricky and treacherous circumstances. He appeals his case directly to Caesar himself. He makes full use of his rights and privileges as a Roman citizen. He works within this system of government. He does not work against the system of government, railing at it. He works within it. Is the Roman government perfect? No. Is the Roman government corrupt? Oh, yes. Is it filled with evil men? Yes. As a matter of fact, who is the Caesar that Paul has appealed to? Who is it? It's Nero. Nero, who not very long from here, uh, will wrap Christians in oilcloth and burn them as torches at his patio parties. Right? That's the Caesar that Paul appeals to. And yet, look how he speaks to Governor Festus. This is a lesson for us. Because we think, oh, bad men. Oh, we must rail against them. We must remove ourselves. No, look at what, how he speaks to him. Acts 25.10. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. If you can show that I have broken the law, then I should get what I deserve, and that would be death. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. He's working within the system that God actually has put in place because God is in control of all things, remember, including governments. Now this is amazing. The Apostle Paul has testified before Jews and Gentiles, before mobs and councils, before governors and kings, but now he will stand before Caesar himself the most powerful man in the world. 
the Apostle Paul will stand before the most powerful man in the world. Just exactly as Jesus said. Now this leaves Festus in a quandary, right? We saw it as we read it. He's, he's bound to send Paul to Rome to send him to stand before Caesar himself. But he can't send a Roman citizen accused of a crime to stand before Caesar's tribunal without knowing what the crime is. What is he even going to say? Here's some guy from Israel and what? And so he needs help figuring out what Paul is in trouble for so he can write a sensible account of the charges against Paul to Caesar. Now it just so happens that uh, an older, more experienced, more powerful man has come to Caesarea to congratulate Festus on his new position as governor, right? And this man is the king or the tetrarch of another part of Palestine. He's King Herod Agrippa II. King Herod Agrippa also happens to be Festus's brother-in-law. Festus is married to Agrippa's sister. So there's a family connection. And since Agrippa is in town, Festus asks him to help him figure out what to write to Caesar about Paul. He tells him what's going on. Agrippa's curious. He says, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to hear this guy talk. And so Festus says, great, tomorrow you'll hear him. And so on the next day, Agrippa and his sister, Bernice, enter the auditorium. It says, amid great pomp, along with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. And they bring in Paul. Here he is. Here's the Apostle Paul, standing in front of great men, kings and governors and commanders, prominent men. All these men in their great pomp, in their splendor, in their magnificence, in their grandeur. What are they there for? Why are they there? They are there to listen to the Apostle Paul. All of these pompous men, these great men, most of them we don't know their names. Um, the two names we know, how many of you guys, you fathers, are going to name your son Festus? How about Porky Festus? How about Agrippa? That's a Bible name. We don't do that. How, what about Paul? Oh yeah, we do that. In the midst of all these great and pompous men, right? We've forgotten all about them. Oh, but we remember Paul. And Paul, Paul is the captive. But these great men, they are the captive audience. They've come to hear what he has to say. Now, let's see what the Apostle Paul says. Let's see how these men respond. So, 
Open now to chapter 26. Let's see what happens. Acts 26, starting in verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Now, let's stop right there for just a second. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, the the Jews know who I am. There's no mystery here. They know what I am. I am one of them. I was one of the best of them. I was a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And why do the Jews hate me? They hate me for actually believing the promise of God. The promise of our God, the promise that our God made to our fathers, the promise that's that's at the heart of our whole religion. What is that promise? It's God's promise to raise the dead. It's his promise to conquer death, to wipe away all tears, to put an end to the curse that Adam brought upon all of us because of his sin. The Hebrew Scriptures, what we have come to call the Old Testament, is full of this promise. It's everywhere. And God's promise to make everything right again is always tied to his promise of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, our Lord Jesus. Psalm 21 says that God will give to Christ and the Messiah length of days forever and ever. (laughs) Length of days forever and ever. Isaiah 25 Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, Mount Zion. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. This is the promise that's at the heart of everything in the Old Testament. When Isaiah speaks of 
this Messiah who will come, the servant of God, the righteous one. Here's what he says, Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So yes, this righteous one, the servant of God, the Messiah, he will die. He will die. He will die carrying the sins of his people. That's what Isaiah said. But he won't stay dead. He will live again to see the fruit of his death. He will see all the souls he died for living flourishing in his own kingdom forever. That's what the Old Testament's about. That's the hope. Daniel, the prophet, he sees this righteous, magnificent Lord, Jesus, ascending to the right hand of God. And it says in chapter 7, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of all who trust in him is at the heart of the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures are full of this. Everything that the Apostle Paul preaches is simply the fulfillment of these promises. That's what he's saying here. God fulfilled all these promises through his eternal Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing novel. This is nothing new, nothing strange. All the Jews should have been right on board with this. He's saying, this is what these Jews are so upset about. I simply believe that God kept his promise. That's it. Now, isn't it amazing how hostile religious people can be against people who actually believe their own religion? The religion that they themselves confess. Think about the antagonism, the hatred even, that can come from professing Christians against believers who simply take it all very seriously, as if it's all actually, in fact, true. It's all kinds of Christians who will laugh at you, mock you, and hate you for actually believing the Bible. Simply believing that it's all true. 
That's what's going on with Paul and the Jews. And now Paul goes on to describe his life before his conversion as a Christ-hater. He's going to talk about how he tried his best to destroy those who simply believed that Jesus was this long-promised Messiah. And then he tells these important men how Jesus turned his heart from a Christ-hater into a Christ-lover. Look at verse 9. So then, verse 9, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. To blaspheme against who? Against Jesus. Now notice what, how this is written. Notice what he actually says. He says, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Some of you have a King James that says, I compelled them. Sorry, that's a bad translation. He tried to compel them. He tried. But he couldn't. The thing about Christians, including the Apostle Paul, it's all about the resurrection. What is death? So he was unsuccessful. And he says, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And, he's, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also of the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and to great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light 
both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. <laughs> what an amazing testimony. That these men are there having to hear. It's filled with truth about the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Think of this. Paul was no match for King Jesus. With all of his violent hatred of Jesus. His violent hatred of those who loved Jesus and trusted Jesus. One little word brings Paul to his knees. And it's over. The Lord Jesus is not asking Paul's permission. <laughs> He's not knocking at the door of Paul's heart, hoping that maybe Paul will decide to let him in. Please, Paul. Can I please come in? No. The Lord Jesus arrests Paul. Stops him in his tracks. While he's on his way to find Christians and kill them. That's over. He changes him. This is a supernatural act of divine power. Incredible power. This is the only way anyone ever comes to embrace and trust and serve Jesus Christ. You and me included. It wasn't like it was hard for Paul, but it's easy for you. This is an amazing testimony of the power and majesty of King Jesus. It's also an amazing testimony of the work of Jesus. What exactly does Jesus do with this power? What can he do for you? What can he do with, for your family, for your neighbors? What can he do with people who by nature hate him? That's, what, that's all of us. Look again at verse 18. Jesus says to Paul, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Just look at this. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus can do. He can open blind eyes. Eyes that are blinded by the darkness of sin. Eyes that are blinded by the devil. Jesus can open your eyes. He can open the eyes of your children. He can open the eyes of your parents. He can open the eyes of your neighbors. He can open the eyes of wicked men and women who violently hate God. That is nothing to him. This is how we come into the world, all of us, with blind eyes. We're plagued with spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing the truth. 
how can we see the truth if we're blind? This is the worst kind of blindness there is. People with physical blindness know they're blind. The biggest symptom of spiritual blindness is that spiritually blind people don't think they're blind. They think they can see. They think they've got it all figured out. Some of you think you can see, but you're blind. Now what happens when the Lord Jesus opens our eyes? He says he opens our eyes so that we may turn from darkness to light and turn from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. When he opens your eyes, you see. You see. You see the light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, what we see is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And again, this is nothing to him. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. When he gives you eyes to see, he turns you from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of God. You are under the dominion of darkness, the dominion of Satan, or you're under the dominion of God. You are either under the dominion of Satan, the dominion of darkness, or you're under the dominion of God, the kingdom of his son whom he loves. There is no third way. There is no third kingdom. Now you young people especially, listen to me. There is no third kingdom. There's no halfway place. There's no fence that you can ride between the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the dominion of Satan, and the, the kingdom of God. There is no third way. Now what happens next? How do these men, these great men, these pompous men, how do Festus and Agrippa respond to Paul's plain testimony of the power and the truth of Jesus Christ? Verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Oh, you're just out of your mind. What in the world are you talking about? Resurrection from the dead? But Paul says this. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. 
but I utter words of sober truth. This is the way to speak about the truth of God. There's no need for tricks. There's no need for sophistication. There's no need for an apology. There's no need for cuteness. There's no need for cuteness. No. I utter words of sober truth. And yes, people will think that you're out of your mind. Don't flinch. Simply speak words of sober truth. Do we believe in the power of the truth or not? God's word is truth. God's word is a fire. It is a hammer that shatters the rock. It doesn't need our lace on the edges. And so Festus thinks that Paul is a madman. What about King Agrippa? Paul responds to Festus. He says, Festus says, Paul, you're crazy. Paul says, no, Festus, I'm not crazy. And he says, for the king, King Agrippa, he knows about these matters. I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa knew about all this stuff. He was kind of a student of the Jews and the religion of the Jews and what was going on in his province. He knows all about this stuff. Then he says straight to King Agrippa. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. <laughs> direct, a direct word to King Agrippa. You know these things are true. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Or probably better, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Or probably better yet, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's brushing it off. Paul says this, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What is this? Is he mocking them? Oh no, he loves them. He loves them. He wants them to have what he has. Life. Forgiveness of sins. An everlasting inheritance. Freedom from the bondage of sin and Satan. Agrippa, I wish that you were in fact just like me. Except for these chains. He loves them. Nothing cute. No mockery. He just loves them. Well, this is 
This is enough for Festus and Agrippa and Bernus. They're like, okay, that's enough. Verse 30. The king stood up and the, go- and the governor and Bernus and those who were sitting with them. They're done. A little too warm in here. A little too close. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not, been appealed, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Do you see what they're doing? Look at this. They have come face to face with the words of sober truth, with the words of Christ, the truth of Christ and his gospel, and they react against it. They're threatened by it. And they get up, shake it off, and they re-enter the world of the mundane. They might as well be talking about the weather. As if nothing had happened. As if they had not just looked truth in the eye. And some of you will do that today. You've heard the truth of God. The eternally true word of God. And you might get a little stirred up. You know, you might get a little interested, a little worried, a little convicted maybe. You might just think I'm crazy. But you're about, literally, right now, about to brush it off. You're about to walk out of here, continue on into the darkness. And if you do that, you will die. You'll die in your sins. Just like Festus did, just like Agrippa did. Don't do that. Don't do that. You have the words of truth right here. Right here. It is all true. (laughs) Every word of it. And you know it. Don't walk away from it. You don't know what's going to happen today. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Come to Christ. He's here, ready to open your eyes, to give you an inheritance in the kingdom of God, forgiveness of sins, life, finally, peace and joy. It's yours if you'll come to him. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us? Please, Lord, open our eyes to your power, to your majesty and your strength, to your mercy, to your kindness, to the forgiveness that you freely hold out to us right now. Help us to turn to you. Turn from the darkness to the light. 
Help us to have faith for our children, for our neighbors, for our friends, the people we work with. Help us simply to speak words of sober truth and help us to love them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.